This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots. I'm James Heal and I'm joined today by Kate Andrews and Katie Balls. Now, Kate, I think the big economic news yesterday was about the Bank of England interest rates. What happened there? So this wasn't a surprising decision from the Monetary Policy Committee, which decided to hold um, the bank rate at 5.25% for the third consecutive time. Um, But it wasn't a unanimous decision. So six members of the MPC voted to hold the rate, but three voted to raise it by another 0.25 percentage points, which would have taken it to 5.5%. I think this is interesting because people have already started to talk about the possibility of a rate reduction. You know, when are we going to lower interest rates? The economy is really starting to feel the crunch. We got the October GDP figures and we saw a small contraction of 0.3%. A lot of that is about interest rates. It's what they're designed to do. They're designed to take heat out of the economy, to get people spending less, to reduce price hikes, and to slow the inflation rate. And and we've seen that's working, but it has other economic consequences. The bank's note when it when it uh, released its statement was very clear that the market should not get too excited about a rate cut anytime soon. The governor of the Bank of England, Andrew Bailey, has made this very clear and 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 that you know we're going to be here for some time. And the minutes actually read: monetary policy will need to be sufficiently restrictive for sufficiently long to return inflation to the two percent target. So uh, you know I think it was a real indication that if there is a bank rate cut to come. It's not going to be anytime soon. It's still forecast that inflation won't return to target until 2025, the start of 2025. Hopefully it will be before then. But let's not forget, you know, the bank's main remit is to get back to that 2% target. Now we can argue, is that right? Is that correct? Should the remit change? You know, in this huge inflationary environment, is it reasonable to do it to make that be the sole purpose? But that is their target. They failed so badly for the past two years to see inflation coming to get it under control when it would have been easier to do so. That the idea, it's it's not surprising that they're being a bit more hawkish now and that they're not going to let up just as that inflation rate is meaningfully slowing. But it is painful. And, you know, this may cause a little bit of tension between Tory MPs in particular and and the Bank of England because one of Rishi Sunak's pledges was to have inflation. Another one was to get some economic growth. And it looks like, I mean, it's going to take a few more months to get the full data set, but it looks like we're going into 2024 with a pretty stagnant economy. Let's hope we don't tip into recession. But that is the fear now that it would be a mild recession, most likely, but that higher than we're used to interest rates could tip us to the wrong side. And Katie, what does all that mean in terms of the political calculations and next year's likely general election? So when I interviewed the Prime Minister uh, for this week's Christmas issue, one of the things he was saying is, you know, I think in the interview, he repeatedly suggested that we were being a little bit glass half empty when it's saying, you haven't done this on your five pledges, you haven't done that. Um, but one of the specific things was on growth. He said, you know, lots of people were forecasting that there would be you know, no growth potential a recession this year. That hasn't happened. And, you know, saying that is something that is an achievement. Of course, you look at the recent figures and you do think, is it, to Kate's point, going to tip into one next year, which wouldn't be good. I think that Rishi Sunak's wording, there's effectively his five priorities, you know, for the end of the year. So he's had growth this year. <laughs> Perhaps he can still say it regardless of what happens next year. But I think probably what I think is most interesting when it comes to election plans mm. is one of the things Rishi Sunak said to me in the interview that's been widely picked up is this idea of a gear shift in taxation. So the point being that you can, well, the 
insinuation he didn't want to get into what exactly being that there will be more tax cuts to come and that would be happening next year I think you could potentially see the Tories in an election campaign setting out you know five-year plan of tax cuts mm. um, but I want to give more of an indication as to where they would go so how much space does he have to do that and um, his argument was that ultimately the Tories are going to be able to do that from controlling spending and reforming welfare. And that's the dividing line they want to do with Labour with the green spending. Um, but Kate, I don't know, do you, how much, when you look at things, do you think that there's much space for that gear shift that he's talking about? There is a lot of money floating around out there. You know, we, there's been a lot of talk about the letter left for the, the coalition government that there's no money left. That isn't quite true, right? We're, we're taxing spending at record high levels. So to your point, Katie, it is going to be a matter of priorities. And I thought it was interesting in your interview with Rishi Sunak that he said the priority next year is to look at welfare in particular and efficiency gains in that space and to cut taxes. So if that is his priority, I think it is possible for him to do it. But we saw the difficulty with this year's autumn state and already starting that tax-cutting agenda. And people pointed out from from the OBR's assessment uh, that his decision to put essentially all the fiscal headroom behind tax cuts for business and for workers meant there was going to be a 19 billion pound black hole in terms of public sector finances because they're not going to be rising with inflation. And I, I think some in government might think, well, look, we can make up that hole elsewhere. We can get some efficiency gains. We can improve productivity in the public sector. That all sounds great and is necessary. I'd, mm-hmm. I'd like to see the strategy for them to actually do that. But others will say, look, he, he's making a choice. And some people are going to say, you should really be investing in public services. It's an interesting question for the Labour Party, because presumably they'd like to do both as well. The Tories have made clear, and based on Katie's interview, will continue to make clear that tax cuts will be the priority. Will Labour say the same thing, or will they actually say vote for us and and you'll get more public spending? But they might not be able to say both. Yeah, I I think Labour will not want to pin themselves down so much on that, in the sense we know the instinct of the Labour Party is to put more money into public services and spending. And therefore, you often hear Rachel Reeves talking about, you know, taxes are too high on working people. I think that's to keep it working mm, people and yeah. um, how far beyond that. And, and therefore you will, I think, see, you know, they don't want to go in and pitch tax rises. I think they think that would be, you know, a disastrous thing to do. If you speak to people close to Ed Miliband, they'll say, well, the lesson of that was you shouldn't have all these policies in your, you know, pitch that could scare people. You think back to the mansion tax, mm. do you mean all, all those parts? So I think there's a, they want to step away from that. But I just think the instincts of Labour MPs compared to Tory MPs and where the spending would go is something you cannot deny no matter, you know, how carefully worded they want to be. And therefore, Rishi Sunak was quite explicit in the interview when I put to him, I said, you know, so what are you saying from this point onwards, if there is, you know, space, if there's headroom, if there's spare money, that is going on tax cuts. And he's like, I've been clear, I've been very clear, very politician <laughs> answer. I don't think Rachel Reeves would be able to say the same, nor would she particularly want to. And uh, finally, Katie, uh, yesterday also saw the long-awaited appearance of David Cameron before the European Scrutiny Committee, and he made some interesting comments to the new Foreign Secretary about Britain's relationship with the EU. Obviously, he left the stage seven years ago and he stepped down as a backbench MP after leaving number 10. But he says he's got a different view on Europe now and how the relationship has changed. Talk us through that. He said ultimately the UK-EU relationship is less angry now. Now, I think when David Cameron returned, of course, you saw the right of the party take from that 
well, they began to come concerned. There was a change in direction on Rishi Sunak's side, moving toward the One Nation Tories, Sue Bravman going. And I think one of the problems potentially with David Cameron as Foreign Secretary in that dynamic mm. is that he's seen as his arch-remainer to the point that some of his colleagues have started to see David Cameron almost as this massive lefty. And you actually, you actually look at many of the things he did when he was Prime Minister and actually the strong line they had on spending, deficit reduction, reforming, you know, benefits and so forth. It doesn't really fit like that, you know, ignoring an ECHR ruling at one point on prison voting. He is not quite, you know, mm. what I think some of the briefings would have you believe, but Brexit has made everything a bit topsy-turvy, I think, in terms of what we now define as being on the right of the Conservative Party and the left. But I think the comments are interesting because um, he obviously feels confident enough to say it, but he's saying, you know, uh, since, you know, losing the 2016 Brexit referendum, he thinks relations are much more functional when it comes to the EU. And I think the turning point this year, actually, in terms of getting barnacles off the boat and so forth, was the Windsor framework, which I think just, if you speak to EU diplomats, I just think it has massively improved things because you've moved that tension. I think there's a question as to if you end up in a world where, you know, we go back to leaving the ECHR or threatening to, what would that do? Lots of people say, well, that would be an awful thing. You think about the Good Friday Agreement, all those things. Though I would say on that, you look at Rishi Sunak going to speak at Maloney, the Italian leader's conference this weekend. Elon Musk also there, clearly becoming a habit for those two. Um, <laughs> but but you, you look at that and you look at all the countries currently grappling with uh, migration with small boats and the current human rights treaties we have. Mm. And you do wonder if, you know, I don't think it'd be quite so simple as a Brexit part two when it comes to, given that I think countries across Europe are facing very similar problems, you would imagine that even if you do get some points when you're looking at some of these, you know, long-standing agreements on human rights and rights to refugees. I think there is a way where the UK would not be the standalone on that. Well, thank you, Katie. Thank you, Kate. And thank you for listening to Coffee Hour Shots.